everyone, this is Jules, your host of the All Things Iceland podcast. Welcome to this week's episode. I had the pleasure of chatting with L.K. Bertram about the very large immigration of Icelanders to Canada in the 1850s. L.K. is the author of The Viking Immigrants, Icelandic North Americans, and is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Toronto. Born and raised in Winnipeg, she also has family roots in Öxnadalur and is the proud parent of twin three-year-olds. If you're interested in learning more about Icelandic North American culture, history, and life, definitely check out her on Instagram. Her handle is the Viking Immigrants. Because LK lives in Canada, we did a virtual interview, and it was such a blast to chat with her. And the insights that she shared about the Icelandic settlement in North America was beyond fascinating. And I, of course, look forward to reading her book to learn more. Just to let you know, we do use a couple of curse words in this episode. So just FYI, if you don't want kids to maybe hear it, for you to put on your headphones and listen to the interview that way. I hope you enjoy this interview just as much as I enjoyed conducting it. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it would be greatly appreciated if you would give it a five-star review on any platform in which you are listening to it on. And of course, share it with someone that you think would find it interesting. Go this canton. Hi, okay. Thank you so much for sitting down with me to chat today. Hey, Jules. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here as well. This is a fascinating topic. I'm not really delved into it, so I think this is a great opportunity for myself to learn and also for the All Things Iceland listeners to get some insight on a part of Icelandic history that I don't think many people hear about. Yeah, very definitely. It's not uh, on the front cover of the uh, like the Air Iceland magazine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But before we jump into kind of the migration of a decent amount of Icelanders back in the day, I'd love to just get a little bit about you. So your background and how you're connected to Iceland. Sure, yeah. So I am Canadian historian. I live in Toronto in Canada. You know, I grew up in the Icelandic immigrant community in Manitoba. So about in the, from 1870 to about 1914, roughly one quarter, we think about a quarter of uh, Icelander, the entire population of Iceland actually left Iceland and moved to North America because conditions in North America were better. After they arrived, they started to develop kind of a distinct new culture. And it's a pretty, it's still a very powerful culture here, uh, which is kind of like the heartland where most Icelanders settled. And it's like an interesting secret Icelandic culture that exists in North America (laughs) that's, you know, very much Icelandic, but also um, very distinct too. So I grew up in that community. And I grew up, you know, with all of these traditions, um, these Icelandic traditions that were really special in our family, celebrated in our city, you know, really, quote unquote, Icelandic. And then in, in 2006, I started meeting contemporary artists from Iceland through this cultural uh, festival called Nuna Now. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd take them for, you know, tours of like all of these places where I was like, look at our Icelandic things that we have. <laughs> <laughs> and they would look at me and say, I have never seen this before. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Interesting. Yeah. So I started to study, uh, as I was doing my PhD, started to study these Icelandic things that exist in North America that don't actually exist anymore in Iceland. And the idea is that the traditions that we find commonly here, Mm -hmm. if you look at their history, they actually can reveal tons about the secret history of the community and how it changed over time. So I look at everyday culture, you know, things that many Icelanders would have been very, very familiar with. Um, Things from Icelandic coffee culture to uh, immigrant fashion. Ghost stories are a huge part of Icelandic culture in North America and obviously in Iceland as well. And Viking parades, like the whole... (laughs) Viking parades, I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Like the Minnesota Vikings kind of thing. Like yeah. you don't you don't see that in Iceland and the Nordic countries. Like they sort right. of pick it up for tourist purposes, but they don't have Viking ships regularly rolling down Main Street, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh also Vinatarta, which is our this kind of like obsession in our community. It's a striped fruit tort that was really popular in the 1860s and 70s and 80s when immigrants left Mm -hmm. and it kind of died out in Iceland you can still find it occasionally or versions of it but in North America we created basically like a Vita Tarta cult and Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) we almost worship it like I'm not (laughs) I'm not totally exaggerating that is fascinating. I've seen it on your Instagram. So I was so curious because I've not heard about it here. So I was like, oh, this is fascinating. You know, And I didn't even think to ask anybody. But now that you're saying that, it's almost as if the immigrant population of Icelanders created this time capsule of Icelandic things that, you know, like you're saying that don't exist really in Iceland or aren't like as popular in Iceland anymore. So is it kind of like stepping back in time to some degree for Icelanders uh- if, they, if they know their history? Absolutely. I think it can be like stepping back in time for them. But mm-hmm. I think what they, they, the many people that I met needed was like a guide to explain, like okay. to kind of like, to like um, connect the dots, you know? And I think once they start to see, you know, it's really actually like learning about the Icelandic immigration, I think for Icelanders too, is about a forgotten chapter in their own history. Mm. because it's not just us that left it's also iceland that really really changed like from you know 1920 to 1950 like that's those are totally two different countries you know iceland because of what happened with the with the military uh, presence there and um kind of the very uh fast process of modernization right so it's kind of like you know i remember my friend one of my friends said to me, uh, Berger Ebi Benedictson, he's a um, comedian in Iceland. I remember we were standing there talking in the middle of this kind of trashy shopping mall in Winnipeg. And I was trying to explain to him, I was like trying to explain to him the community and why we were the way they were. And he was just like, what is this? (laughs) And so I kind of like took that question, like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And just kind of like created almost like a guided tour to what is this? Mm, okay. And is that something that's specifically for Icelanders or is it for anybody who's in the area and wants to understand more? 
Absolutely. And I think it's about all cultural communities in North America at the end of the day, because, you know, most of us have our like official cultural institutions and our official cultural leaders mm-hmm. that are on paper, like the history of cultures. Um, but when we look at like, how do cultures survive? Like how do cultures live and why are they powerful in everyday life? Right. It comes down to details. It comes down to home, comes down to family members and like rituals And that's really, I think the home is really where the power of culture comes from. And so in the Icelandic immigrant community, yeah, we, a lot of what's been written about us is written about immigrant leaders or written about our official culture, which many of us have almost nothing to do with. Like before I finished my dissertation, I really had no connection to the official Icelandic organizations or institutions. Mm, Um, And yet I felt I hadn't, I never thought anything like, Oh, I'm not Icelandic if I'm not in these cultures, like in these, you know, organizations. Right. It was about the everyday. Definitely. Okay. And identity wise, I've heard people refer to like the immigrants who went to Canada as like West, Western Icelanders or something like that. <laughs> Is that mm. how you refer to yourselves as like these Icelanders who live in the West? Or is that even like a term that's, that's utilized there? Yeah, we use it quite frequently. There's some people that really get like a bee in their bonnet about it because <laughs> they say, well, no, we're Icelandic and American. Mm. So we're Icelandic Americans. Like they have to like do the nationalist yeah. thing. So, I mean, Vestrislanding get in Icelandic is clear. It's like clear who you're talking about. Right. But when you say it in English, I think then you have some of these community leaders that are like, no Icelandic Canadian, you know, it's, it's mm. funny how, it, <laughs> but it's just like, I don't know. I don't know if Icelanders and Icelander is bad at arguing about everything as we are. Like, <laughs> we just argue constantly. <laughs> and learning the language. I'm assuming that must've been uh, a part of your growing up as well. Mm, well, a little, like not really actually, because okay. Mm, as I discuss further in my book, <laughs> Icelanders had to embrace the English language to survive. Right. And speaking Icelandic, like for example, you know, if you went to school and spoke with an accent or spoke Icelandic in front of, say, Anglo kids, right. um, you could get beaten up or you'd just be labeled like an immigrant, you know? Yeah. So a lot of Other. Icelanders. Yeah, a lot of immigrants developed a tense relationship to the language, including my own Amma. And so she taught us words, but she never taught us the language. I have my uncle, my mom's brother is totally fluent in Icelandic, so that was helpful. Yeah. But um, yeah, I had to like come at learning Icelandic. And it was so hard because I felt like I should be able to get this language right away. Yeah. You know, I should, uh, like, I'm supposed to belong to this language. And yet it was so challenging for me. It was very, uh, it was very difficult. But uh, I kept at it. And actually, a friend of mine, um, who's an Indigenous language scholar and activist here in Canada, she and I were going to Iceland together. She was looking at like Icelandic um, language policy to apply to protect Indigenous languages in Canada. Mm hmm. So she she knew all this stuff about like 
language and identity. And she kept asking me all these questions and I really didn't get what she was talking about in terms of like why language was so critical to identity Mm -hmm. Um, until I just kept learning the language and kept really thinking about it. And then I realized, you know, I was, I was being shut out of like a huge chunk of my history because I didn't have the language. So the goal of the book is kind of also to reach out to people like me that don't have, didn't have um, the language but need that connection to the everyday, you know, to like, to like the heart of the culture. And that's why I focus on these like everyday things that are so familiar because people can speak that language, you know, it's kind of like a language that never needed any translation. Uh, Like, you know, coffee or like vina tarta people, it's a language we can all speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Language learning. It was, it was hard, but you know, now I have it. My my grammar is not great, but I can speak Icelandic and I speak it to my kids, which is nice. really meaningful. Yeah. yeah. And they watch Kvalpasveit uh, on... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if you guys, you're probably in the Kvalpasveit. <laughs> yeah, April, I mean... Yeah. With my, yeah, I, I, my niece and nephews, yeah. <laughs> it's cute. Yeah. It's nice. So for my kids, I want that for them. And it's like, it's also so important in North America for right. them to know that English is not the be all and end all mm-hmm. of knowledge and prestige and culture. So, you know, on the one hand, it's like a way of me taking care of the Icelandic part of my identity. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, as like a Canadian, I think it's so important for their future to know that like there are so many people in our country and in our continent that live like us, you know, that have that special language that they take care of and that they can kind of think in. And, you know, it's like having that second language is so vital. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. And like you mentioned, it's such a key part of the Icelandic experience because even I'm sure when, when you came here, and just wanting to socialize or wanting to get to know some of your relatives or whatever it is, there's that element of the language becomes a big part of like the social gatherings and everything. If Icelandic people are together and you're, the, and if you don't know it, you're just left out of understanding yes, a lot. Absolutely. It's not a good feeling. No, um, <laughs> it's very lonely. <laughs> no, it's very lonely. I totally hear that. Yeah. But then it's funny when you start to learn it and you you learn kind of the stories embedded in the language. Mm-hmm. Like I always think of that word, eldsnemma, um, like so early in the morning, mm-hmm. like fire fire early, I guess is the translation. <laughs> but it means it's so early in the morning that you are the person starting the first fire. Mm-hmm. And that term for me, it's like I can see the homes, you know, I can see mm. the lives of like people when I use yeah. that word. And it's, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's part of like your day too. You know, you have that kind of interesting bond through language. Yeah. That's awesome. And how long did it take you? I mean, this is probably like a pursuit over many years, but I'm just curious, like what did you come specifically to Iceland to study Icelandic? Did you do it in Canada? Like what was your route to take to learn it? Oh, yeah, I had a lot of teachers um, <laughs> <laughs> that were probably like, oh, my God, why can't this woman learn Icelandic? 
My first teacher was uh, Harold Bessesson, who was a linguist that taught in Manitoba for many, many years. Okay. And he he died, um, you know, partway through my PhD. Oh, wow. He was so funny. Oh, my God. He was just like, I don't know, you know that thing with, like, Icelanders um, – when they're telling you a joke, but they have no facial expression. I feel like he is like the king of that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they pride themselves on that. Like many of the people oh, yeah. do this. <laughs> such an art, such an art. And uh, I had lots of teachers here. And then I also used that great online, um, like learning Icelandic online through House School Islands. Yeah. Icelandiconline.com, I think it is. Yes. Yeah. So good. I had such a good experience with that. Awesome. And then I just started coming to Iceland and taking classes and like going to summer schools and then reading really helped. Yeah. I listened to uh, Ruv all the time in my home just to like get the vocabulary and to keep Mm -hmm. it fresh. And yeah, but like, I mean, I still feel very self-conscious speaking Icelandic, but I get to have my own relationship to it at the very least. Yeah. 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 It's definitely a lifelong process. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. similarly like just doing all the things that I feel like I can and having teachers and things. But and people ask me like, are you fluent in Icelandic? And I was like, that is a trick question. I know you mean well. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's just like, there is in my mind, like having a, a good command of the language takes a lot. And there's even for, I've heard from linguists uh, that even some Icelanders have some trouble and they've been learning it their whole lives, you know? So it's like, that it's it gives you a little bit of comfort, but then it's also like, dang, okay. <laughs> like, this is a lot. <laughs> so It really is. It really is. It's kind of just like, I don't know, you're kind of swimming in the Icelandic ocean, you know, and whether or not you're going to actually ever get to the bottom of the ocean is, you know, up for debate. Yeah. But at least you're, and- you're in it, right? You're there. Yeah. And that's always, like you mentioned, you were just like consistently doing things. And I think that's the biggest hurdle for most people is that it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere for a while. And then all of a sudden something just starts clicking and not everything at once, but certain things. And you're just like, oh, wow, I totally understood that. Or I can read that news article or whatever, you know, and your, your yeah. brain doesn't have this, like, we've gotten there moment. It's more like, you just realize that it's coming to you after so many hours of jamming things in. <laughs> so that's, that's yeah. helpful to know that eventually something does come out of it, but it isn't that instant gratification that I think many of us would love to have. You know, it's not Spanish and it's not French. And right. goddamn God that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, Cause I was like, do you guys know how easy French is? Like, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, and then also obviously Canada and the U S were always being taught like as our second languages are um, like Latin languages. Uh, yeah. Okay. No. So like all that kind of like Germanic, like the Germanic roots of English that we probably would benefit from learning about. It's just treated as kind of like garbage, you know, that it's like, yes, Let's talk about the real language, which is the, the Latin <laughs> the Latin language. And you're like, ugh. So you kind of you're we're kind of like hobbled in a way, I think, from starting in the language. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about because we've been talking about your book. We've alluded to it, and it's called "The Viking Immigrants." Yeah, just for those who are you know interested, and I'll have a link to the sh- in the show notes to it so people can check it out. And I'm just wondering about. 
any, like when Icelanders immigrated over, because you'd mentioned like not wanting to have an accent or picking up English so that you aren't seen as an immigrant. Were there any other like prejudice or difficulties that Icelanders experience trying to integrate into Canadian society or at least, you know, North America? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the main or one of the first challenges that a lot of Icelanders faced is that um, they actually weren't considered to be white people when they first Mm, arrived. Okay. And in the 1800s, this was, it's just like how, like, obviously like race is fiction. Right. Um, And so ideas about what, what our racial divides have changed over time. So in the 1800s, how people defined race was based on a lot of different things. And a lot of it had to do with geography, religion, and then ideas about, you know, do you live in the civilized world or in the savage world? Mm. People knew like almost nothing about the North. So they were like, oh, Icelanders. So they saw them as being these kind of like, almost like an animalistic people that lived in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. So when they arrived in Canada, they actually had to create like a campaign to talk about like their connections to Europe, you know, their devotion to, to like Christianity, um, their love of literature. And this is where actually the Viking tradition comes from. They started, because, you know, it does seem a bit random that people that are migrating in the 1880s want to talk about the uh, 980s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was like a propaganda campaign in many mm-hmm. respects for uh, white Anglo people to say that Icelanders are, they call themselves like Scandinavians to try to align themselves with like successful American Scandinavian groups like the Norwegians and mm-hmm. the Danes and the Swedes. And also to say like, you know, we are part of this like medieval, like ancient race of like Viking people that are very closely related to the English. Mm-hmm. So for them, it was about trying to um, basically improve their position on like the, the ladder, the hierarchy ladder, the racial hierarchy ladder in North yeah. America. And that was some Icelanders, but other Icelanders, especially people that developed close relationship to indigenous communities in Manitoba. So mostly Cree people, Ojibwe people, Métis people. They, you know, I think they saw, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so complicated. Like there are Icelanders that created mixed race families mm. in Manitoba. And those families, you know, some of them, I think, ultimately rejected their Icelandic identity because the community was, the larger community was so fixated on gaining that acceptance. Right that they began to attack people within the community that they thought were going to threaten their upward mobility. Yeah, for sure. What you would do just to be, you know, in the in crowd, basically. Absolutely. And so I've seen many references to, and not just Icelandic indigenous people, but also Norwegian and Swedish indigenous people. You know, I'll meet like an indigenous guy and his last name is like Gvidbjörnsson or something. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) That's odd. But then they would have like no connection to their family. And I think that's like one of the the really hard stories in our community that people don't tell. 
But it's quite clear to me doing the research that this is a widespread phenomenon. And I remember this one guy I met, his last name was Magnuson. And I was like, so you're Icelandic? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, wow. Um, It was around the time of like, and I said, so did you hear about that crazy volcano? And he goes, are there volcanoes in Iceland? Oh, wow. Yeah, like that's how like separated they have become. I think it's like, I think it's a real travesty. And I think that's something that our community really needs to do a much better job of dealing with. But we do have this kind of like twin relationship to the colonial project in North America. And that is that, you know, on the one hand, you could argue that some of us have like a distinct and like, quote unquote, better relationship to Indigenous people. But on the other hand, it's very clear that Icelanders were were really part of the colonial project and really played a role in what happened here and what's still happening here with indigenous people. Mm. The intense racism they face here Mm -hmm. uh, and like the ongoing land claims. And it's just like, it's a real, you know, to tell you the truth about Manitoba, like it's a real hot mess in terms of the way that indigenous people are treated here. It's, I think a lot of people that would come here would find it like absolutely shocking and uh, our community doesn't really talk about it and so I I sort of took it on in the book and then um, especially in the ghost stories chapter and then I also wrote a whole article on like exactly how Icelanders participated in kind of like the armed suppression of indigenous uh, people yeah because we we need to um, as a community we need to really get our shit together and start dealing with that legacy yeah, absolutely. That is fascinating in the way that, like, I'm shocked to hear that. But at the same time, when I interviewed Christine Lofstotter, who uh, does a lot of work here around race and whiteness and Nordic exceptionalism, mm-hmm. this kind of thing happened in Iceland as well, but not in the same way, obviously, because they're not living around other Indigenous people. But in order to, as a country, and wanting to gain independence and be accepted by you know other European countries and not seen as like the same as Greenland, for instance, as Greenlanders, Absolutely. right? Like there was this campaign by Icelandic intellectuals in Denmark to brand Iceland as being like on the same level um, and not be seen as savages. So it's like it's it's kind of interesting how that parallels, and maybe not in the same time periods necessarily, probably to some degree but how it's happened in both places right, where large amounts of Icelanders have got, uh, live in order to be accepted and, and the sacri- not sacrifice, but more of like the um, moral shift that people will make mm-hmm. in order to be accepted. And yeah, that is intense. Um, it is intense. That. It is intense, but you know what? I think that at the end of the day, you know, our community, again, like with the Viking statue, mm-hmm. the Viking statue is often a reference to Leif Erikson or Leif Erikson mm-hmm. uh, coming to North America before Columbus. This is how Icelandic immigrants were also like, oh, we are <laughs> long here, you know, we got here before Columbus. Yeah. And I do think that that is, again, this is part of their, their old propaganda campaigns. But I do think like when you read the sagas, there are interesting points that are made about you know what the range of relationships could be like like the sagas are sort of like historical fiction like we don't they're not an accurate historical record Mm 
Right. But they are, especially if you look at the two sagas that describe life in North America, mm-hmm. there are some, like, some interesting points that are made that you could kind of say, like, you know, I could see maybe where this, where there's some reality in here as well. Yeah. And... I would say to Icelanders here in North America, you know, we actually, we do have a different history here in North America. And I think that that is an obligation, that is an inheritance for us that we need to take more seriously. And we don't have to be like, you know, the English overlords or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. We need to, we can be, we can be better, you know, we can do better. And... I don't know, just like, yeah, take ownership. Yeah. So present day Icelanders are thriving in Manitoba. Like what is the conditions of the community now? Oh, we're all over the map. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, some of us are not doing so well. Let's just like realize like Icelanders and Ice. Yeah. (laughs) Like everyone, everyone, everyone. Some of us, you know, we have like the the kind of like wild Icelanders that are, you know, <laughs> in biker gangs and stuff. Wow. Okay. So, oh yeah. <laughs> well, we call ourselves, um, our, the ethnic slur for an Icelander is ghoulie. It's like really? a, yeah, it's like a slang word, um, for Icelander. And it means kind of like, um, actually Björk, I remember a couple of many years ago now asked, why don't we have an Icelandic word for redneck? And I wanted to write back and be like, there is one. <laughs> I like how you're excited about this. <laughs> I was like, you should really come to Manitoba because we got a lot. <laughs> but Ghoulie is like someone who's just like, you know, really country, mm. really Icelandic, kind of backwards. It's funny because you'll even like, goo- but they'll still have like a full set of the sagas <laughs> in their life. <laughs> and they'll be like, have you read this novel lately? <laughs> It's really funny. So we have like the wild Icelanders. I guess you could call kind of like the ghoulies. Yeah. And then um, since the, I mean, Icelanders are terribly image conscious in North America. Mm-hmm. And so they've always been very much about like trying to, you know, show that they can, you know, be the best and like, you know, achieve the high offices and like make mm-hmm. a lot of money. So we have like the overachievers. <laughs> You know, like we've got it all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you do you say bestihemi in Manitoba? Like, no. Well, okay. Not really. We say like um, no. Actually, like a lot of the Icelandic that's used here now, <sighs> it's mostly just very elderly people that speak it. Okay. And so yeah. yeah. So, it's, so it's different terms like you're mentioning with the the slur and uh, that that are used because here it's like I've not really heard necessarily when called that but like certain areas that you live in that's where they'll be like oh yeah those are like kind of like Icelandic rednecks you know like it, it's, kind of, it's, it's messed up <laughs> like this whole area really the whole thing I yeah. don't think so but that's just you know the over generalization that most people tend to <laughs> go yeah. I mean like if you want to come to Canada and like see someone riding around on like an ATV waving an Icelandic flag <laughs> smoking a cigarette like I can hook you up <laughs> <laughs> probably with like balls dangling from their yes. pickup truck or something yeah okay of that's course. Uh, uh, of stuff course. I've seen in small town USA plenty yeah. of times <laughs> like, I know and like in a concerning way but I don't know it's like the 
the weird ethnic components that have survived in these mm-hmm. areas that I find like so fascinating. Like for example, the um, there's this chapter in my um, book where I talk about why ghost stories are so important. Yeah. And so here in Manitoba, we have uh, like a lot of Icelandic ghost stories about places and a lot of them involve indigenous people. And so they're really interesting because, of course, when Icelanders first came to North America, the Canadian state said, here, you take this land. Mm. Even if they hadn't finished negotiating treaty with the people that lived there. Wow. Yeah. So oh, okay. My, my friend Ryan Aford wrote, wrote a really, really great book about it. And you can, he'd be a great, I don't know if you ever want to interview him, but he's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's interesting though, because Icelanders, if they thought that a place was haunted, mm-hmm. they obviously would not go there. Right. And so there's all of these stories in Icelandic about, you know, indigenous people spiritually inhabiting the land. And if you if you trespass on that property, like all these horrible things could happen to you, including some of them would like kill you because of course Icelanders believe that ghosts are yeah more physical beings right And so interestingly, Icelanders, even though they were these kind of like colonial agents or you could even say like these hillbillies in a way, you know a lot mm-hmm. of them are really isolated rural regions right the culture itself, created an interesting effect and that was that they actually wouldn't cross certain boundaries that the Canadian state was like this is our land this is colonial land but Icelanders Mm -hmm. like if they were following kind of like the traditional way that most of them thought at that time Mm -hmm. they'd say we're absolutely not going on that land that land is not ours you know it's, it's already inhabited right so I found that really interesting so yeah it's like this these weird, you know, it's like kind of like when you realize that the country can be like a really intellectual space. Mm-hmm. There's all of these like odd things in the country that don't have to fit into the image of like the country as being like innately conservative or like right. like innately close minded, you know? Mm-hmm. These people really created interesting intellectual universes for themselves that are kind of surprising, I think. Okay, yeah. What about elves and like hidden people? Is that something that <laughs> that it, it, in Manitoba that still that exists or that people talk about? Well, you know, it's interesting because most there's of course there's like for ghosts, not elves, but for ghosts. Okay. There's more than 18 kinds of ghosts in Iceland. Okay. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> And they, the, all of like the spirits and like the Icelandic pantheon have certain kind of attributes and like can behave certain ways and not other ways. And so they believe that um, certain kinds of ghosts could very definitely immigrate and that they did immigrate. Mm. But most Icelanders believe that the Huldafolk didn't immigrate. Okay. They couldn't immigrate because they were land spirits. But there were people that believed that some did. And so we do have some stories here. One is in uh, Arborg, which is north of Gimli, about like 20 minutes north of Gimli. Okay. Um, And I heard a story about a big stone in White Rock, BC, or was it Point Roberts, Washington? There's a little Icelandic settlement right on the Canadian-American border. um, Okay. 
on the Pacific Ocean um, where these people were going to blow up a boulder. And this old Icelandic woman said, don't touch it. It's something bad will happen to you. And I think something did happen to one of them because they did try. Yeah. Of course, people told stories about them. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's most of the supernatural stories you hear about North America involve ghosts, supernatural dreams, psychic premonitions, and uh, sometimes oh, fucking good zombies. <laughs> <laughs> it's like horrifying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I saw that you posted about this, kind of like the significance of supernatural beliefs to Icelandic immigrants, and especially women in Winnipeg. Yeah. So I was wondering why with women, are they the fortune tellers or like the, you know, mediums for this information? Yeah, it's interesting. I think for women, you know, it's, I talk about this term in my book, it's the which in English you would call it superstition. Mm-hmm. But hjautru is more like a word about a belief that is sort of like, running alongside mm, okay. running yeah. alongside Christianity. And I believe that because um, when Icelanders accepted Christianity, there was a provision made for people that practiced the old faith and, you know, kept the old world views mm-hmm. that they could continue to practice in private as long as, you know, the Christ- Christianity was the official religion. Right. Okay. So we actually see these really fascinating um, superstitious traditions survive in Iceland when they were kind of stamped out in Europe. People still believe them today. And that's why Icelandic ghost stories are so like kind of weird, you know, like people mm-hmm. a ghost story would be like, that is way too much. <laughs> that, is- <laughs> that does not sound good. <laughs> um or it's just like so scary or so kind of a strange. And it's, I think it's actually really these old components that have survived. Yeah. And so for Icelandic women, these were, you know, part of a longer spiritual tradition that they p- played a role in preserving over those hundreds of years. And one in which they could be the spiritual authorities, you know, that mm. they, you know, you didn't have to, you know, go and listen to a reverend or a minister preach to you about how to protect your family or something like that. Like you could take direct action. You know, you could right. go see someone could, you could go see a spouse, Kwana, you could go see a, what we call in English, like a fortune teller. Mm-hmm. You could interpret your own dreams. You could, you know, you could do all these things. Yeah. So for women, it was like definitely part of spiritual, having their own kind of like spiritual authority yeah. And I noticed for the immigrant generation, it was just like coping too, because of the unreal amount of trauma those people experienced, like, mm-hmm. you know, losing, just having like so much premature death Yeah, in those days. And like, if you think about like, just like human psychology, like the human brain can only handle so much. Mm-hmm. And psychologists have said that actually superstition is common in people that suffer from uh, severe anxiety. Wow. Yeah, it's actually, it helps if you're anxious because it creates the image that you have control over the things you actually have no control over. Right. Yeah. So for those women, yeah, it was like this whole tradition. And yeah, some of those women were considered to be very powerful. Like you really didn't mess with them. And it's, you know, still kind of around today, even in our community. And I know obviously in Iceland as well. Yeah. 
yeah, so it's special. And um, again, it's part of like that, that home culture. It's really like, like you really kind of gender a lot of this culture is female. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but it's like, holy darn, it was that like a really powerful force. Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating. And I'm thinking about like, um, cause even when you mentioned trauma, I'm sure there's also like this parts of generational trauma with having to even move from your homeland. Right. Because of, and, and the move was based off of something drastic. It was like living in Iceland was very difficult. It was quite poverty stricken, but also I think there had been a natural disaster. Isn't that like um, some parts of why people left as well? Absolutely. But the the places that I see like the superstition the most is to related to like really bad accidents or like, mm, okay. like, like I see. Okay. Trauma. like not just hardship, but like, stuff that would give you PTSD. Yeah. Okay. So, got it. Yeah. So okay. like, um, for example, when Icelanders first came here, they actually caught smallpox from one of the immigration sheds in, uh, oh, Quebec no. yeah. And then they brought it to new Iceland, which was this small, this little, like, uh, it was like an immigrant reserve basically. Yeah. And then there was this horrible smallpox epidemic and, there's actually um, a lot of ghost stories about the smallpox epidemic because it's, it was so traumatic, you know, that, that um, it killed so many people. It's interesting because one of the stories is about, or quite a few of the stories about the indigenous people that died in the epidemic. Sorry to go back to that issue, but I can't, I can't bring it up if I, and not talk about um, them because. No, it's totally fine. Yeah. They have a much, they had a much, much higher mortality rate than the Icelanders and the Icelanders, did bring the disease mm. yeah and they i remember reading this one ghost story about how one of the ghosts was this little girl this little indigenous girl that would sit on the graves of two people two adults okay and she was so regular that people in the town almost like tried to take care of her okay <laughs> yeah like she was so like such a fact of the community yeah and so um there was this one woman that lived nearby and she tried to like, she wanted to help the ghost. And so she would put flowers on these graves to try to help this little spirit, mm-hmm. but the little spirit wouldn't leave. And I think that's a really important, like she just kept appearing. Mm. And that was like very, that very much reflected how Icelanders saw what had happened. It was something that they couldn't resolve. It was something they just had to live with. Yeah. I think that in a way, you know, especially in North American history, people always want to like tie up the story and mm-hmm. like have the resolution and be like, and then things were restored. And then, yeah. but it's like, that's not really the story you can tell about colonialism at all. Right. So yeah. I find these kinds of stories very helpful for speaking about that history in a way that's maybe more accurate. Yeah. And, and realistic to life in general, because it is somewhat the fairy tale ending that many, like you mentioned in North America, we grew up learning about the happy ending. You know, like he, there isn't much else to the story. It's like, and everything was great. And it's just like, everything's great. I'm an adult, right? Like I'm, you know, as you think back to this time, it's like, that is not how life is at all. So, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I think that's like the Icelandic story, like the traditional Icelandic story narrative structure is like negative. Like the ending is always mm. like, and then everybody died. I'm like, That's <laughs> it's like shit. <laughs> and yet factual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, and technically, yes. 
deeper but, than telling totally right <laughs> <laughs> is there also this idea of like um kind of taking things a little lighter so like when things are super tragic or sad that there is i wouldn't say the lightheartedness because in, in iceland sometimes people are laughing say in movies where you don't normally laugh and they <laughs> right and they're like it's like icelanders and and, and the finnish apparently are like this and <laughs> so i'm just yeah. wondering if, if you find that kind of similarly where there's this finding humor in things that would ordinarily just be like wow that's that's kind of tragic <laughs> oh totally like the very inappropriate humor <laughs> yes oh yes like, okay oh you could not say that you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> like do i laugh now like this is so like <laughs> disturbing no that's mm-hmm. totally i remember seeing a trailer for i think it was children of nature and it was they'd try to translate the trailer for an english audience and it was like an uplifting journey about two old friends. I don't, have you seen Children of Nature? I don't think so. Okay, it's... spoiler alert. Well, maybe I won't spoil it, but it's like a it's like a perfect Icelandic film, and it's not uplifting. I mean, maybe for Icelanders it's uplifting, but <laughs> not, didn't really translate for English audiences. But yeah, it was like they must have hired like a Hollywood narrator to do the trailer. Okay. Is it with go on a journey? And like, yeah, mm. is it with these people who was like they they escape their nursing home or something? That's the one. Yes. Okay. Then I've seen this one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it was like sometimes you know the thing that you thought you lost has been with you the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It was like the funniest thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would not consider that uplifting. It's it's there's fun parts to it. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is okay. I, I saw that I think in Icelandic, so that's why I didn't yeah, okay. That's yeah. hilarious. Oh, dear. <laughs> For anybody listening, if you want to check that out, you'll it's a it's a good movie. I thought it was quite fascinating in that way of like, you know, uh, getting back your independence and stuff, but there is definitely darkness to it that is hard to come to grips with because you realize this could be a part of your own life, you know, someday, or it is in, in another way with a relative or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, it's a different. Icelanders tend to emphasize different parts of the life story. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. Okay, in terms of impact from Icelandic immigrants in Canada or North America. Could you speak a little bit about have they left any impact or had any impact on the culture? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in Iceland, the financial impact of the migration was massive. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, there was like, and I was thinking when I was writing the book, I should really go into this and like do a whole economic study. But I was like, that's a separate book. <laughs> but when I before I Saunders left, there was overcrowding, not enough, like not really like a stable food supply or stable enough. People didn't have enough land. There just was there was too many people and not enough resources. So what happened with the immigration is Icelanders, you know, freed up a lot of land, freed up a lot of resources by leaving. Mm-hmm. And then when they got to North America, they started to make so much more money than they could have ever made in wow. Iceland. And then sending it back to Iceland to relatives, mm. circulate in the local economy. Right. And then, of course, Iceland, a lot of Icelanders invested heavily in like nation building kind of funds. So a lot of immigrant capital went into the formation of Aimskip, 
Okay, wow. First Icelandic. I did not know that. Yeah. Interesting. And also the foundation of the University of Iceland. Um, so financially in Iceland, you know, we see a lot from the, obviously like the allied and NATO investor, like the Marshall plan kind of money in Iceland. Yeah. But before that, a lot of money had come from the immigrant community and made a big dent. And then in Canada, yeah, like we've got tons of Icelanders that, you know, were kind of did really, really well. Like, well, of course in Canada, hockey is such a huge thing. <laughs> that is like everything here. And so the first Canadian hockey team to win a gold medal at the Olympics was actually a team made up of Icelandic immigrants from Winnipeg. Wow. Yeah, they were called the Falcons, the Winnipeg Falcons. Mm -hmm. And they formed an Icelandic team because the English League were kind of like bastards to them. (laughs) (laughs) Like, wouldn't let them play. I think there was a lot of blood on the ice. Like, people would fight quite a bit. So the Icelanders were like, Okay, we're starting our own team. And then they won. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, it was great. And then we had like this glamorous socialite. She was kind of like the Jackie O of Canada. Her name was Signe Eaton. She was, her father was from Skaga Theater. A lot of like affluent business people now, a lot of government officials. Oh, and also a cartoonist for Disney that helped create Bugs Bunny and Snow White. Wow, okay. Yeah, and he actually said that his, or the story is that Snow White was actually based on a coffee waitress from an Icelandic coffee house in Winnipeg. (laughs) 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 So, like, you know, there's, like, some debate about this, but that's, like, the story here is that Snow White is not only Icelandic, she also serves coffee, or she served coffee, like, at this famous Icelandic cafe. (laughs) hilarious yeah but okay. he was kind of a wild uh he was a bit of a ghoulie he he lived a very wild life charlie Thorson. Yeah. okay yeah. so yeah we've got and we've had like icelandic cowboys and like just like yeah people all over the, i think the head of the um uh, museum of modern art in new york city for a while was an icelander and yeah just icelanders doing all the kind of random things that they <laughs> yeah are, are known to do <laughs> yes and spreading yeah. out everywhere I mean that's what's so fascinating to me too is that you can often find maybe not in every country but in so many places around the world that Icelanders end up being in and you're like oh okay there's so few of you but yet yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've managed to get to you know these different places yeah absolutely absolutely pretty cool I, I did read something about the about coffee and I was kind of wondering about that like you're talking about that Icelanders couldn't find or they, they they only find tea or something and yes so they like started brewing their own coffee and like importing beans and things like that yeah because of course English uh, people love the tea right like they're mm-hmm. all in the tea and uh, tea is cheaper as well so you know if they had these like little tiny settler stores far away it'd be really hard to find like really good coffee beans because it was considered to be like a luxury drink Mm. so for Icelanders this was quite the problem because they were such ferocious like coffee was like really really important in Icelandic culture in the 1870s and 80s still is today and so they couldn't get coffee and so there's all these immigrant letters just like Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> the withdrawal is real. <laughs> like... 
and then sometimes they'd get some beans and they'd be so awful and you could just oh, no. you could feel the, the, the sadness <laughs> and so uh yeah they started what they did basically was they just started like changing things so they started home roasteries so they would mm. custom order their own green beans and because they didn't trust the english uh <laughs> merchants <laughs> They'd be like, buy these beans. <laughs> and then they'd buy roasters and roast them in their own house and then grind them. And apparently the smell was like amazing. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, like you'd hear somebody coming down the road and then all of a sudden people would start roasting coffee to get ready for visitors. And they also developed like their own, um, like, the, do Icelanders still use coffee polka, uh, like a coffee polka in uh, Iceland, like the cloth sock? Like I, a, I don't drink coffee, so I, lo- I like the smell. I know, I know, I know. Sorry, I'm, sorry, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a reaction I'm used to, so I always have to, like, you know, I ease it in there whenever yeah. it's necessary. But, um, <laughs> and funny enough, my husband doesn't either. Oh, and good I think he, Yeah, I think he's the only person in his family that does not. So that's always funny. We go to gatherings or we have gatherings at our house and people are like, we've been, we've had people buy us coffee, um, make coffee presses just because they were like, you can't invite people to your house and not have coffee. Oh, it's unacceptable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, sorry. <laughs> so, That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. so yeah, I'm not sure like if he will do or not because I'm not even paying attention when they're making coffee half the time. So. <laughs> That's okay. Don't, don't be pressured into it. It's peer pressure. No, uh, I feel fine about it. It's, it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, for us, like it became the center of our, like how we organized in our neighborhoods and our towns. And yeah, we started Icelandic coffee houses, including the one that Snow White worked at. <laughs> and they became these real cultural centers. And uh, yeah, we had these, the coffee polka is like a cloth bag and you use it instead of a paper filter. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking I should do an Instagram video of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll do, I'll put it up if you want. Yeah. So then you just grind the beans and you like pour it through this cloth bag. And the cloth bag over time becomes really, really dark because it's got all those like delicious coffee <laughs> essences in it. Yeah. So it actually seasons the coffee when you're brewing it. Oh. Yeah. So it's kind of like coffee plus. <laughs> so you're not, you're not cleaning the bag. You're maybe just like dumping out the grinds when you're done, but you're keeping it relatively. Yeah. You want to keep like the oil in it. Yeah. Okay. And the smell and everything, but you, you do rinse it with hot water. Yeah. Okay. It's a, moldy or anything like that yeah okay <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying it's unsanitary I'm just because I've um I've heard of people who do this with their cups which is kind of interesting um, uh, and I don't know do you do that or do people uh, do that I all okay. these weird Icelandic like ooh. <laughs> yeah but this one guy is like he does not clean his coffee cup he lets it sit in there after he's you know had drink or whatever and he won't let anyone touch it because he feels like is seasoned or something and I'm like Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not understanding this, but I am also not here to judge. I'm going to yeah. do my business. That's your cup solely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is somebody I worked with. I just found it fascinating. <laughs> that is really funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome though. There's so many different fascinating things and it's been really cool just to, to kind of get an overview of all of this. And definitely I will, like I mentioned, put your book link 
in the show notes. And if people want to connect with you, is it best to do that through Instagram or where's it? That'd be great. Yeah. I have an Instagram account. It's called the Viking immigrants Okay, and the account has like, it's basically stuff that didn't make it into the book. And then just, you know, all the unusual things that the ghoulies are up to over here. Yeah. <laughs> And also where to go when you come to Canada, because we are not uh, so good at like marking everything that's here. Like it's kind of hard to find, you know, mm-hmm. important sites here. And yeah, so I'm trying to create kind of like a social media presence for like kind of like the secrets of the immigrant community here. If you want like kind of a more personal introduction to it. Great. That's awesome. And of course, before I we end off, I ask this question. To everybody and that is what is your favorite Icelandic word or phrase? Alskan is my favorite because it's the the word that my was one of the Icelandic words that my ama used. Okay. You know it was like one of the words, the survivor words. Yeah. And, uh, so Alskan is one and then um she used to sing me uh an old Icelandic lullaby called Bibioblaka. And that's okay. another one. And I remember when um, one of my cousins got on an um, Iceland air flight and saw that on the headrest, they'd printed the lyrics to Bibi Oblock. Oh, <laughs> and, really? Oh, my God. And, like, posted on Facebook. And everyone was like, ah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> very funny because it was, like, an airline, you know, headrest paper. Yeah. <laughs> they do um, some really fun things on Iceland air, like, from time to time. So. They do. And the soundtrack is so good. The movie selection. Oh, mm-hmm. like not like really. I'm always looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> so LK, thank you. This has been awesome. So insightful. Honestly, I just, I feel like you've opened up a new world to me and probably many others just in terms of context about this history, because it is, it's so important, but also we've dug a little bit deeper too into how it's impacted Canada and indigenous people. So a whole lot that happened here. And I really appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge or at least a decent amount of your knowledge and, and people can find out more. Oh, thanks. Well, I love your account and I love the work you do. So it was such an honor to be invited on your podcast and yeah, I hope we can do it again. Yeah, me too. Thank you. And it has been an honor to have you. Oh, thanks. Thanks.